Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Coast to Coasties podcast. Today, I'm very excited to welcome a special guest of mine. He's actually the first guest that we've had on the show, and he's got a very interesting perspective to tell us. He's a fireman in the United States Coast Guard, which to me is the way to go as a non-rate because you get so much hands-on engineering experience. So if you're interested in any engineering rate, I recommend you try to put in to be a fireman. But without further ado, we're very excited to welcome Fireman Luke Campbell to the show. Hey, I'm Fireman Luke Campbell. I'm stationed on the 225 Bowie Tender U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Oak. Uh, I'm originally from Wyoming, actually, and I've been on the oak for just under a year. So now, when you're talking about you were from Wyoming. Do they have Coast Guard recruiters in Wyoming that you can go and talk to, like any other coastal state? Because, I mean, coastal states, there's a recruiter's yeah. office just about everywhere yeah, yeah, that you can go good. and see. Yeah. So how's the process of getting recruited from Wyoming? Uh, it was pretty long and drawn out, actually. I reached out to them and basically got all of my paperwork done. And the nearest recruiting station is about eight hours away from me in Denver. So I got all my paperwork done. And then I got flown from my hometown all the way down to Denver for MEPS. And the first time I actually met my recruiter was on the car ride from MEPS to back to the airport. Did they pay for your flight? They did. They paid for just about everything, I think. Okay, so everything was covered, no charge to you to be able to do this whole recruitment process out of an inland state like Wyoming? I think it was a bit harder, but it was not any more expensive. Okay, that's good to know. Just, I mean, there's a bunch of people that I assume have interest in the Coast Guard in the middle of the country, and they just they don't really have the opportunities to know. Like They might think, hey, maybe I have to pay for all this. So it's good to know they don't have to. Yes, the best way to start that process is just to email your recruiter there's also i believe a form that you can fill out on the coast guard recruiting page that just basically sends out your contact info to the nearest recruiter then they will contact you uh yes okay um so you joined the coast guard at the end of 2020 that's when you went officially to boot camp yes i got into boot camp the tuesday before thanksgiving of 2020 Okay, so if you went the Tuesday before Thanksgiving of 2020, where obviously we're in the height of coronavirus, how was your boot camp experience? And can people going in the future relate to your boot camp experience because it was during the height of the coronavirus pandemic? Honestly, I don't believe that my boot camp experience is very useful to just about anyone in the Coast Guard because so there is a two week ROM period where you're basically quarantined. You have to stay six feet away from basically everyone besides your rackmate but what happened for me was we were in there that period for two weeks we got out we did our medical and processing we did our physical fitness assessment and then about 20 minutes before we were set to go into our forming week which is just basically a weekend long smoke session we got put into the hardest quarantine I think I've ever seen. We weren't allowed outside. We were allowed in our squad bay and into our head. So, and then we were in that quarantine for about two and a half weeks. And then by the end of that, they were really rushing to get us out. So we were in very small companies. They weren't giving us any physical training. Well, they were giving us physical training, but they weren't like beating us or I'm not, I'm not even sure what the terminology is. That's how little we were. But they gave us classes and got us to a point where they were comfortable graduating us. And then we basically basically got kicked out the door. 
So even in the coronavirus pandemic state, did you still feel prepared for the Coast Guard when you left boot camp? Yes, yes. Um, I think so. I'd been told by a lot of people that the main purpose of boot camp is to teach you how to put on a uniform. Like, you're not going to learn anything about the job in boot camp. And that's okay. That's the point of boot camp. It's to teach you how to conduct yourself in a military manner. And in that case, they succeeded very well. Okay, so you leave boot camp and you report to the Coast Guard Cutter Oat. Was it an operation at the time? What was going on when you first reported to the Oak? So it was actually quite difficult for me to even get in contact with the Oak. They give you a set of phone numbers to call, which is the pure phone and the uh, officer of the day cell phone. But I got those numbers and neither of them were in operation. So I had to actually reach out to the Oaks Ombudsman, which is basically a liaison between the families of people on the on a certain unit. An ombudsman is a military-wide term, and get a point of contact through that person. So I eventually got a point of contact, and re- and we I learned very quickly that the Oak was not actually operational. It was in Dockside, down in Baltimore Yard, and was going to be in Dockside in a maintenance period for about four more months. Okay, so four months in a maintenance period, so you get assigned as a fireman to the Coast Guard Cutter Oak. Are you doing any fireman stuff while it's in this dockside maintenance period, or are you sort of just shadowing back? Is there anything you have to do when you first report that? When I first got there, obviously, I had to do introductions, learn, like, do some mandated trainings that basically everyone has to do when they report to Uh, their first unit. But once I got all that stuff done, I was basically just hanging out for about two or three months. I reported in the end of January. And by April, all of engineering basically packed up our stuff and moved down to Baltimore for about a month and a half where we performed, I'm not even sure what the actual numbers are, but we performed well over a thousand hours of maintenance. And we were working most weeks, seven days a week, for about eight hours and just getting the boat ready to be livable and being able to sail a ship again. So you're telling me that you show up to this cutter and you're working seven days a week, long, hard hours. Is this typical or was this special just because it was the dry dock circumstance? Like, is this normally what a buoy tender does, work seven days a week, all these incredible hours? That is not a typical buoy tender hours. Especially, I'm a main prop fireman, so my division is in charge of our two main diesel engines, our two main diesel generators, and we have an emergency diesel generator. So a lot of our stuff can't really be done in a lot of situations. So I usually work five days a week, six hours plus duty, sending duty. But when we were down in Baltimore, that was definitely not the norm. So when you say that you can't normally do a lot of things as main prop, are you referring to when the ship's operational in its actual seagoing state? Yeah. When we are underway, it is too dangerous, too loud, too hot in the engine room to really be doing a lot of the stuff we need to do. We can be in the engine room, we can be doing some stuff, but we can't work on those systems because if you open up the wrong cover or basically anything, if you pop open a zinc, suddenly you're going to be sprayed in the face with tons of pressurized hot water or oil or whatever it is. So then as a fireman, what do you do underway? What are your main responsibilities on actual operation? So underway, my main responsibility is to stand watch. 
we stand a four hour watch and we have to do two rounds. We do an inside round and an outside round. Inside is just inside the engine room and outside is outside of the engine room in all the other engineering spaces. Okay, so when you're referring to inside and outside round as a watch, you're just monitoring gauges or are you making sure everything's normal, nothing's out of the ordinary? What is a watch really entail like while you're doing this monitoring? A watch usually entails, like you said, monitoring gauges. We also have to take oil levels with dipsticks, and we also just verify that everything is running as it should, that there's no leaks, there's no sounds that shouldn't be there. That's actually a very important thing, that there's no smells that shouldn't be there. You're using all of your senses to ensure that everything is going well in all of the engineering spaces. Okay, and you mentioned that you're a main prop fireman, so there's several divisions of firemen on one of these platforms, the buoy tenders? Yes, on a buoy tender, or at least the buoy tender that I'm currently stationed on, there are two firemen. There is main prop, which is what I fill, and then there's an A-gang fireman, which is in charge of all the other mechanics on board that don't fall under our main prop <laughs> so basically any mechanical system that's not in the engine room yes fall under that department yes okay then given that in the engine room besides monitoring and on your watch because i'm assuming based on other people i've spoken to everyone on the cutter stands a watch mm-hmm. so when you're not standing watch what do you do as the fireman are you trying to get other qualifications can you go out onto the buoy deck uh, yes. you. Once you're fully qualified, you can go out onto the buoy deck with your supervisor's permission. You can work on that qualification. And another part of my job as a fireman is uh, ECERT, uh, ECRT, which is Engineering Casualty Response Team. So if something goes wrong, the more experienced engineers will usually go down there and try to fix it. And once they get it fixed, they'll send lower ranking, less experienced people to, like myself to go get cleaned up. We also run a lot of drills underway for just various casualties, uh, personnel, mechanical, fire, flooding, all that stuff. Okay, so during these casualty drills, as a fireman, do you have any specific duties or are you billeted just like everyone else is on the cutter? Like, Do firemen have a special role as compared to other non-raid seamen on board the cutter during these casualty drills? Nope. Unless I am the journeyman engineer of the watch, I have a billet just like every other person on this boat. My personal billet is the P100 pump team, so I'm just setting up a pump that can serve to replace the fire pumps in case of a casualty in regards to them. Uh, If I'm the journeyman engineer, that means I'm likely going to be the first person on the scene. If it's flooding, I could be trying to set up pumps, trying to just start dewatering. If it's a fire, I could be spraying water onto Not water, usually it'd probably be AFFF, which is another firefighting compound and it depends on where you are when the casualty takes place and so what are the benefits of going and getting these qualifications like buoy deck outside your rate so you don't need to go get that buoy deck qualification so why would you go get that qualification what would it benefit you in the long run to get that well there are plenty of benefits like personally i really want to get it mainly because i just want to be on out on the buoy deck because it felt weird to be on a buoy tender without having worked a single buoy but it also makes you seem to be a more go-getter type person. You're more of a self-starter. If you're sitting around doing nothing, that doesn't really endear you to the people that you work with because it just makes you seem lazy because you'll be sitting in your office and suddenly all of the deckies will come in just covered in filth and just absolutely destroyed 
and you just get to look at them and laugh. And I never quite, I never felt good about that. Okay, so you're a fireman on a buoy tender, which presents a unique set of challenges because there's a black hole and it works buoys. The majority of ships and cutters in the Coast Guard are white hulls. Have you any experience of how white hull is different from talking to other engineers on your ship? Would they tell you how white hull would be different for a fireman? To be clear, I've never set foot on a single vessel that is not the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Oak. But from talking to other more experienced engineers, more experienced just people in general, the fire, there tend to be a, a lot more firemen, a lot more engineers. And from what I can tell, the firemen actually have quite a bit harder jobs on those boats. They are almost always going to be working a lot harder than the deckies. I think a buoy tender is one of the few platforms that a deckie will almost always work harder than a fireman. Okay, so how does that work then? Obviously, the deckies work hard when they're out at sea. They're working buoys, but then we shift. The ship goes back into port for a few weeks, dockside period. Mm -hmm. Are the firemen still getting off easy, or are they the ones now working? I think at that point, it definitely switches. Because when when we're back in port, I'm suddenly working on several hours of maintenance at a time. I'm assisting. Very again, very important. I'm assisting and taking apart pieces of machinery, cleaning. I'm basically just filling. I'm fixing everything that could have broken and catching up on all of our backlog maintenance that happened when we we're underway. So you sound pretty busy as a fireman overall. Even when you said underway, you're not doing necessarily as much work as you in port. It sounds like a pretty busy life being in the Coast Guard. I think I kind of go out of my way to make myself busy, and it, it helps that there in my shop there are only four people, including my chief. So there is myself, my immediate supervisor, whose billet is an MK3, but he's an MK2. There's an MK1 billet, and then an MKC billet. And especially when one of those other people is out of commission or busy or doing something else, we all kind of have to pick up the slack. So a couple months ago, I basically single-handedly put on a very expensive and pretty important part of a system onto one of our 3608 main diesel engines that was about a hundred pounds and just like i was kind of reached around this piece of metal and just like trying to thread a bolt in without messing up a gasket and that's the stuff that i enjoy it definitely is work so now the big question here is did you read the manual or did you just try to wing it i definitely read the manual always <laughs> If there's anything that I can have that's been drilled into my mind, whenever you're working on something, pull the cards because you don't want to be the guy who messed up something because you weren't looking at the cards. Even if you've done it a hundred times. Even if I've done it every day, there is a filter inspect that I have to do every week. It takes me 30 seconds and I honestly don't know what could possibly go wrong. Like it's important, but there's not much that could go wrong. But every single time I do it, I always pull that card because I don't want to be the guy who messes it up. Well, that's just a good procedure and good habit to have. So yes. you do have the procedures that you need to pull the cards. It's just good to have it standard across the board. Yep. You treat everything like it's going to go wrong. That way, you're not surprised when it does. Well, I think that's solid advice. I mean, just because, you know, you can apply some lessons from boot camp even to just do everything right into the best of your ability. Carry that over into the fleet and always ask if you don't know Never be the person with a secret and never be the person with the question. I've asked a thousand stupid questions in my life. I've asked probably a hundred in the last week. But 
because I asked those stupid questions that I felt stupid while asking, I knew I wouldn't mess it up. And that gave the people who were above me confidence knowing that I wouldn't mess it up. Well, that's very important because, you know, if you're the guy that messes it up, you could have a much more detrimental effect than just you. And when we're getting to talking about this, this is that saying that recruiters often tell people when they sign up for the Coast Guard, you're going to be having high responsibility coming out into the fleet as a non-rate. And this is what Fireman Campbell is saying here. He's repairing these whole systems by himself. They're having him repair these entire systems. That's how much he's relied upon as one of the lowest ranking members of the Coast Guard. So you can see how each individual member has such an important role to play in this puzzle. Definitely. You're going to be handed something that somebody in another service wouldn't get handed until they were probably an E5. My dad is a chief in the Navy right now, and I've told him some of the stuff he does that I do, and he's told me that he would never have one of his E3s do that. He just wouldn't have them, because, and if they were doing it, they would have somebody basically looking over their, their so- shoulder the entire time. When I'm talking about these systems, like that piece of machinery that I was talking about, I had somebody come along after me and inspect it, and they went over it with a fine tooth tooth comb, and I always had someone that I could go to if I had a question. That's very important. Do you like having that confidence in your, well, that your team has that confidence in you to trust you with these projects? Definitely. It's always nice knowing that the people you respect, respect you. And I have an immense amount of respect for the people in my shop. Well, now I want to shift to outside the actual cutter work itself now. And obviously, when you join the Coast Guard or the military in general, the military is your life. Like this becomes your life. So when you leave the cutter for the day, whatever time that is, drops hours, probably 1 p.m., normal workday is 3 p.m., it doesn't end right there, does it? No, definitely not. On certain days, if you're standing watch that day, you're on this boat, you have 24 hours of watch. So you show up at 6.30, you get off watch at 6.30, and then you typically have to work that day. And in that 24-hour period, you stand two six-hour shifts on the quarterdeck. But after you say your work day ends, you usually go home to, depending on where you live, either your barracks room here... At my current unit, we have a government-leased apartment, so I share my apartment with a roommate, and I usually you go home for a couple hours and then go to the gym that I have a free membership of, because I don't want to pay. So usually spend maybe an hour or two there, and then go home, cook dinner, chill out for a couple hours, and then go to bed and wake up and do it all again. So let's put a little context into this now. So because the Coast Guard Cutter Oak is stationed in Newport, Rhode Island, it's on the Navy base. Mm. So the Navy gives you, as a Coast Guardsman, access to all their facilities? Yes. Uh, Every... Everything that the average enlisted person on the Navy base could access, I can access. So I have a free membership at the gym that I never have to worry about renewing it or anything like that i have all of the i have access to the commissary and the exchange the commissary is a grocery store the exchange is basically a clothing general convenience store and i have access to their medical facilities their dental facilities all that okay and when you're saying that you have access to their medical and dental facilities part of the coast guard's health care plan 
is TRICARE. So when you set up an appointment with TRICARE, is it differently than when you did in the civilian world for setting up appointments? <laughs> so this uh, speaks to my ignorance on the general world outside of the military, but I have never set up a doctor's appointment outside of the military. I got in when I was 19 and I was still living with my parents and my parents always set that up. So I unfortunately can't really tell you. Okay. So with TRICARE then, yeah. what's your process to going through TRICARE? Because I've heard as much like socialized medicine in the sense that we buy into TRICARE throughout our paychecks, but we don't have really billing for our medical appointments regardless of what those are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for a medical appointment, the way it would go is like I would call up the naval station and be and say something along the lines of, "Hey, I'm Fireman Campbell on the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Oak. I need to set up an appointment with my primary care physician, preferably within the next week." And they would say, "Okay, do these days or hours work for you?" And I would pick one of those, and then I would go. I would not get billed. Probably about as hassle-free as I can think of. And so this applies to standard medical points. Now, let's say you have a medical emergency. Like one time I hit my head on the cutter and mm-hmm. I got a concussion. I also do not have to pay for anything like that. So could you walk you through a situation like that that could have happened to you? Yeah, of course. Uh, so I've got a couple uh, examples, but I'll go with the least gruesome and we'll save the better one for later. But when uh, about three days into working with my current job, I slipped and fell and knocked myself out on a ladder well. Uh, so I had to take an ambulance to the uh, emergency room. The way it should have gone was they took down my information from the back of my ID, which has a benefits number that basically tells you everything that will give the hospital that you are at the information to verify that you are who you say you are and that you are under TRICARE. And I don't know exactly how that goes afterwards, but once you have given the hospital that you're at, the emergency room that you're at, your benefits number, you are no longer on the hook for whatever medical charges you incur there. So completely covered through the TRICARE system. Completely covered, ambulance rides, completely covered, all of that. Okay, so you're telling me that... We're getting complete medical coverage. You get full access to these Navy facilities because you're on the Navy base. Do they cover your food as well? Yes. So there is a galley on board that you can eat, that I usually eat breakfast and lunch at. Uh, I usually cook myself dinner, so obviously they do not cover that. But uh, at certain units, you actually do get a stipend to pay for your own food. That's called Basic Allowance for Sustenance, BAS. But again, that is not at this unit. So they cover food and housing too then. So what do you actually have to pay for being in the Coast Guard? Uh, I have to pay for internet and gas and all that stuff. But it's a pretty good life. Very low expenses. Very, very low expensive. I believe I'm putting around 1500 into savings per month. That's incredible. I mean, the military, you know, starting as a non-rate, we're not getting paid the riches, but... Even still, with all the money we're saving, doing all this, would you say the Coast Guard is giving you a nice quality of life, insurance of security, knowing you have that stable paycheck? Oh, definitely. I, <laughs> I definitely think that I earn my paycheck, but the benefits that I get 
through the military are definitely worth it. And do those increase as you put in years as well? Yes. Uh, so the benefits stay stagnant. So obviously I can't pay. They're not going to pay me to go to medical. But uh, as I move up in the ranks, as I go to different units, I can get BAH, which is basic allowance for housing, for housing which they the government will give you an allowance to live in the economy. So you'll have however much money they say, depending on where you live, and they will give you, say, $1,500 a month to rent an apartment while you live there. And uh, as you go up in rank, your BAH goes up and your basic and your base pay also goes up. It's just amazing how much they take care of us. I really appreciate that. So just a couple questions to wrap it up. Yeah. Um, do you get involved with any community-based service organizations or do you want to in the future to sort of give back to your community while you're serving in uniform in the Coast Guard? I don't currently, but I definitely would. I would definitely love to get into, say, working with the Humane Society or uh, with animal shelters because I like working with animals quite a bit, but I don't currently work with any of those organizations but I would definitely love to at some point later on. Yeah, and a lot of organizations, they really much appreciate when people in uniform come and aid and assist them because I sort of feel like sometimes society feels a little disconnect from the military, and it's a nice way to branch people together in this community-based organization activities. Yes, there's definitely a disconnect because you're living in an area, but you're not quite part of you don't really feel like you're living in the area. I, so I live in Rhode Island, but I don't f- feel like I live in Rhode Island. I feel like I live in the Coast Guard. At Nav Station Newport. Yes. So it's almost like you're in your own little bubbled universe, yes. Coast Guard-wise. Definitely. That's, thank you for putting that into words. But like you said, I definitely want to get out into the community and make my presence there worth it for that area to bridge the bond between civilian and military society is uh very rewarding as we're trying to hear anyway so just by coming on this podcast show alone we're trying to get this message across as many people as possible just information about coasties civilian mariners and it's great to have people like you on um last question i would have for you is do you have any advice about safety culture aboard the <laughs> ship i feel like that's a very serious question that the whole industry like the whole maritime industry as it's going right now is it having a huge push towards safety culture they're drilling it in trainings and classes so what advice would you give in regards to safety culture and how you can improve on safety culture so Whenever a new non-rate reported for months, I would always give them the, basically the same spiel. Be very, very careful on ladder walls. Because at that point, I had seen two people, myself being one of them, get sent to the hospital on ladder walls. The other one, I was actually the first person on scene for. That was kind of, that was very, very scary. But the reason I haven't been doing that lately is because I had another incident on a ladder wall. And... <laughs> When that happened, I was transiting through a scuttle. We had just pulled into Portland, Maine, and my feet were wet. And as I, there's a small brace that locks open scuttles. And to close a scuttle, you pop it. You break that brace. And to do that, I hooked my left index finger in. 
And when that happened, my feet slipped out from under me and I pulled about a 50 pound scuttle down onto my hand. And that brace actually cut off the tip of my finger and broke my hand. So the thing that I would say the most about safety is be careful when you're doing the stuff that you've done. I've never seen someone get injured doing something dangerous because there's always a guy watching them, making sure that they're safe. But you can't watch someone every time that they go down a ladder well. So you have to be the one in charge of your own safety. At the end of the day, safety starts and ends with yourself. Well, so now in this incident, like you're saying, you've gone down ladder wells and closed scuttles a million times since you've been on board. You never know when that one time is. It's something really dangerous. Ships are inherently dangerous environments. And so it's very important just to keep an eye out. One hand for the ship, one hand for yourself is what I've always been told. Yes. You never know what day it's going to be, when it's going to be your day. Like December 2nd, 2021 was my day. That was probably the, not probably, that was the most pain I've ever been in my life. And accidents are always going to happen. You have to take every step that you can to mitigate those risks. And if, God forbid, you are the person that gets hurt, the most important thing in that moment is to stay calm. Because when it happened to me, I was alone in an engine room that was probably about 100 decibels. So incredibly loud, incredibly hot. And so what I had to do was open up a 50-pound scuttle with one hand and run out and basically give as much information as quickly as possible to as many people as possible so that I could get the medical care that I very desperately needed. (laughs) And through the trainings that you guys do on the ship where you're constantly doing drills, as you alluded to earlier in the episode, was the team that took care of your hand properly trained and they act on scene in an appropriate time manner? Yes. The team that took care of me is called BDS. And they kept me calm. They wrapped my hand in layers and la- layers upon layers of gauze and bandages and basically set into motion a very checklist that ended with me getting onto an ambulance and going to an emergency room and getting the care that I needed. So training works. It's effective. Yes, it is very effective. All right, that's a message to everyone that's in the Coast Guard that hates those trainings that we do constantly on cutters. Is Fireman Campbell's lived an actual emergency scenario, and he can tell attest to you firsthand that training's worth every second of a real situation. Don't worry, I'm still going to complain about them, but I do. They are important. <laughs> um, any last things you'd like to attest to the? I know we got a little off track here, no, but all important stuff. But any last things you'd like to attest about being a fireman? In the Coast Guard for perspective, people that are looking at going through boot camp, they're not sure what rate they want to go yet, but they're deciding between, should I be a fireman? Should I try to apply to be a fireman? At the end of the day, your experience is defined by your attitude. Even if you're a deckhand and you're on the buoy deck or you're on other platforms just being a decky, I don't really know what deckies on other platforms do, but when you're at your unit your attitude defines your experience and everyone's going to have bad days, but it is entirely up to you how you deal with that and whether at the end of the day you enjoy yourself there. I think those are wise words of advice. Thank you very much for coming on today, Fireman Campbell. 
It Thank was uh, very, we very much appreciate having you as your our first guest on Coast to Coasties podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been fun being on my first podcast. Oh, we didn't even touch about your future. What do you want to do with your career after you become a fireman? So I am currently on the A school list for machinery technician. Uh, I'm not sure when I'll be able to go because I've still got a heel, but I am hoping to go to that school around springtime so we wish you good luck and maybe we'll have you on here when you're a machinery technician again talk about how your experience has evolved i would absolutely love to and thank you for having me on yeah of course well everyone thank you for listening to another coast to coasties podcast again we appreciate all the listens that we get on here and i'm gonna be doing more interviews here in the future and we're gonna have more guests talk about their rates and experiences of the coast guard because The people are what make the Coast Guard what it is. And it's always very nice and important to be able to have these special guests give their unique experiences. Because as I've alluded to before, 40,000 plus active duty members, 40,000 plus unique experiences to the Coast Guard. So when we get people like Fireman Campbell that come on here, it's always a treat to be able to pick their brain and explore them for a little while. So we appreciate you listening today and we hope you tune in for the next episode. Thank you.